You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. My name is Marshall Fritz. I'm with the Advocates for Self-Government, a tax-exempt educational organization headquartered in Fresno, California. The purpose of the Advocates is to present the freedom philosophy honestly and persuasively so that opinion leaders can encounter these ideas, evaluate them, and when appropriate, embrace the ideals of self-government. To achieve this purpose, we teach communication and presentation skills to those people who are most deeply committed to the freedom philosophy, the libertarians. The presentation you are about to hear is part of the Communicator Workshop presented to 51 Libertarians at the Advocates' third annual Summit Conference held in Los Angeles, November 13, 14, and 15, 1987. This workshop was designed and presented by David Brigland, Philip Mitchell, and Marshall Fritz. It is copyrighted. Should you wish to make copies as personal gifts for your friends, you hereby have the permission of the authors. For commercial use, please write to us at 5533 East Swift, Fresno, California. 93727. And now, let's go to the live recording at the beautiful Pacifica Hotel. Here we are at Advocates. Summit 87, the Communicator Workshop. Culver City, California. November the 13th, 1987. A lovely day and a marvelous group of what librarians, liberadians, libertarians. Right? Look, no, no. Speak for yourself, my friend. I come to you today as the president of a mock Toastmasters club, and I bring the meeting to order. And our Toastmaster for today, this is a very special meeting today because we have a number of guests here at our Toastmasters meeting, and we'd like to welcome them. Uh, how many of us here in the room are at their first Toastmasters meeting? May I see a show of hands, please? My goodness gracious, three-quarters of the room. <laughs> That's fantastic that you're at your very first Toastmasters meeting, and we from Toastmasters welcome you. Toastmasters meeting has a number of, of uh, assigned personnel for each meeting who do various jobs, and you will find out what each person does as they come up or in the, in the uh, course of the meeting. And as the president of the club, it's, it's my business to make sure that A, there's no old business to slow things down, B, there's no new business to slow things down, and we can get immediately into the program. <laughs> and our Toastmaster for today is none other than from the great Central Valley of California city of Dinuba, please welcome John Graham. Oh! Oh! Take it away, Johnny. Well, since uh, the flag flute and invocation has already been done, apparently, we have uh, first on the agenda here is our topics master. And our my home club, we usually have humor first, but the topics master is first here. And we have Art Rathjen. Is hard to clap with a microphone in your hand. Mr. Toastmaster, fellow Toastmasters, and all you guests. As libertarians, we frequently encounter non-libertarians who have some concerns as to how our philosophy would satisfy some basic human needs. They pose these to us in the form of questions. I have some of those questions which are very commonly asked. What are you going to do about the poor? Carrie Walsh is not here. Tom Riley, please come up. 
Tom Riley from La Canada, Flint Ridge, California. The question is, what are you going to do about the poor? You have one minute. The poor have been with us for many, many years. They've always been with us. And I would say that uh, one way to not solve the problem of the poor is to not give it to the government. Because when the government gets a hold of something, uh, then uh, it uh, proliferates. There's a, where there were a million poor people before, now there'll be 10 million poor people because there's a, is an opportunity for profit in it. So I would say that um, in order to reduce the problem of the poor, uh, turn it back on the basis of individual responsibility. And uh, for heaven's sake, don't give it to the government. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Another frequently asked question, how would you defend America? Patricia Culladane? <laughs> Patricia Culladane from Campobella, South, South Carolina. Carolina. That's right. The question is, how would you defend America? Perhaps first. I would draw the distinction between the United States on one hand and America on the other. America is the people. They're the people who work, who support themselves, who care about their children, who worry about education, who run the mills, who provide the impetus, for love, America is a dream, a dream that we, I don't know what that means, I know that. <laughs> America is a dream of individual sovereignty, a dream that we can all help make, make come true, so America needs no defense, it only needs our cooperation. Thank you, Patricia. Being new to this club and following a slightly different format, I forgot to have our timer explain the timing device and how we time people in Toastmasters. Would you do that for us, Bruce? For those of you who are going to be answering the questions in the one-minute time frame, at 30 seconds into your speech, I'm going to hold up the green card. That will let you know that you have 30 seconds left to answer the question. At the 45-second time frame, within 15 seconds left, I will hold the yellow card up. And then at 60 seconds, I will hold the red card up, and that will indicate that your time is up for you to answer your question. For those of you who are going to be making the longer speeches, a five to seven minute speech, an eight to ten minute speech, or a longer speech, I will give a one minute notice with the green card. I'm sorry, a two minute notice with the green card, a one minute notice with the yellow. 30 seconds. It's not what you have written down here. <laughs> Would you, Okay. Okay, we'll do the others later? Okay. All right. Then we'll carry on. Thank you, Bruce. Another question we're commonly asked is, what about the Soviet Union? What about the threat? Brian Esterson, are you here? Brian Esterson from Mountain View, California. The first thing, first thing that uh, three out of four people ask me is, well, what would you do to defend the country? The, the fourth person usually asks, what about the poor? So if um, three out of four people believe that the Soviet Union is a threat, then uh, three out of four people would be willing to counter that threat by whatever way that they believe best. Some people believe that uh, trading with the Soviet Union is the best way to, to uh, neutralize them as a threat. They're buying from us, they can't be busy shooting us. Other people believe that by having a strong defense, we would be defending against the Soviet Union. Um, that bring, brings to mind the story about how the Soviet Union is like a burglar that 
that rattles on doorknobs in a hotel until it finds an open door. But if three out of four people are worried about the threat of the Soviet Union, then three out of four people would be perfectly willing to defend against that threat in whichever way that they believe is the best way. Thank you, Brian. Another related question that we always hear. We need the draft, don't we? Dorothy Livingwood. I'm out of names. Mark. What's the question again? What was your name? Mark. Mark, just Mark. Okay, Mark. The, the question again was, but we need the draft, don't we? Okay, um, I voluntarily joined the military, and I thought I was doing it to defend freedom. So when people tell me that we need political restrictions and constraints and statutes to compel people against their will to defend freedom, I can see where they're coming from. Uh, we need the draft as badly as we need to defend ourselves against the Russian Empire. The big bad Russian Empire to which we lent somewhere around $77 billion in the year of 1985. Uh, we don't need the draft because if we stopped um, supporting the Russian bear, it would disappear because communism doesn't work. The only reason they're still around is because we're feeding them all of our well-earned uh, goods and services, selling them grain on the market below market prices so they can go around and sell it to somebody else. And we're giving them freely or at least very inexpensively, high technology ideas which originated in the free market, originated in America. Ideas uh, such as a little tiny ball bearing which is necessary to be produced so that nuclear guided missiles can arrive on target. Okay, that's the end of my talk. Thank you. Thank you. These questions aren't necessarily in order of being most common, but they are all common. Can you guarantee we'll be better off with the free market? Karen Allard. Karen Allard from Tacoma, Washington. The free market is something that is voluntary, it is not using coercion, competition in the marketplace where goods and services are provided. It is the best way for communities to interact and for there to be no taxes. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Another common question concerns drugs. You wouldn't decriminalize drugs, would you? Dave Graham. Dave Graham from Escondido, California. The question is, you wouldn't decriminalize drugs, would you? Uh, yes. <laughs> I'm not ready. <laughs> um, why would I? Because they only hurt the person that uses them, and um, if they were decriminalized, the person wouldn't have to steal to get the money to, um, to get them. How it is, it just makes a, um, a big dangerous situation with um, the, the drugs being over, like really expensive, and uh, the people have to steal to get the money, and then they rob, and then it causes crime to have the drugs illegal. 
Thank you, David. Mr. Toastmaster. Thank you, Mr. Table Topics Master. Now, before we go into the speech section, uh, you took one of mine, didn't you? Before we go into the speech section, I would like our awe counter, uh, Rick Pesoto, to come up and explain what an awe counter is and does. been um, many, many years since I've been in the Toastmasters Club, <clears throat> like 10 years or so, and the club I was in did not have an awe counter. We, I, I know what it is. I've, um, I've been and attended some clubs as a, as a visitor in, in which there was an awe counter. One of the problems that speakers frequently face is that they lack for a moment a thought of what to say next, and they think that if there is a gap a moment of silence that they're going to lose their audience. Well, it doesn't work that way. In fact, many times a moment of silence can bring the audience to you because they're, one, they're, all, they're all in anticipation. What, what, what's he going to say next? So a speaker who, th who fears this, this moment of, of silence, these couple seconds of silence, tries to fill it with some sound that comes out as an ah or an uh, and it's not good speaking practice to do that. So the ah counter points out these things, and today, so far, some of the speakers were exceptionally good in this respect, uh, particularly the table topics master himself. Ah, uh, uh, very good, right. <clears throat> the one who impressed me the most, though, really, was Patricia Cullinane. There were many times, several times in, in, in her speech, when I would have expected a lesser speaker to say an ah, but she came right on through and did not say the ah. To give an actual account, I got Tom Riley for three, Brian... Esterson for seven, six, some of them rather long, uh, Mark for five, Karen zero, Dave Graham for three, and I thought three was very good considering that he apparently has less experience in front of a, an audience than most of the other speakers. I guess I'll be back with uh, a further report after the other speeches. Uh, thank you, Mr. Allcounter. Uh, Rick Pesotto. Now, our first speaker of the evening, and in my home club we usually have a 15-minute break between this part and the next, but we're going to go right through it here, is uh, Mr. Kim Goldsworthy, who is a programmer, analyst, probably has something to do with computers, if I'm not mistaken. He is a member of Mensa, a member of Toastmasters International, a past district governor, able Toastmaster, winner of several speech contests. He is the Libertarian Party of California chairman for the Foothill Region, ran for the U.S. House of Representatives in 1986, and is planning to run again in 1988. Obviously, there's not enough Libertarians yet in his district. I give you Kim Goldsworthy. Thank you, Mr. Toastmaster, fellow Toastmasters and guests. The talk I'm going to give you right now, I call what Toastmasters has done for me. And I want to do this in, in five to seven minutes if I possibly can. I was active in the LP a few years ago and Tom Cobb had come to a regional meeting and said, hey, there's the Libertarian Toastmasters Club that meets at such and such a location at such and such a night. And I had heard about this Toastmasters organization. They had a positive ring to it back then. I didn't know anything about them, but it's very positive the way 
he described it and the reputation I had heard. So I thought one of these days I'll go down and check them out. And I did exactly that. I went down on a Tuesday night to a Seasons restaurant in Los Angeles. And I thought before I walked in, I'll just sit in the back, hide in the corner, just kind of check out who's there and what they're doing. I don't get involved. No, 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 no. I don't, I'm not a joiner. No, no, no. I just want to see what's going on. That's all. And so I came in and, you know, they came in. Oh, a visitor. What's your name? They took my hand. Didn't expect that at all. So I was completely thrown off guard. So they sat me down, had me fill out one of these visitor cards saying, uh, basically, who I am, name, occupation. And they asked me whether I'd like to participate in the table topic. I had no idea what that was. So I said no at the time. So I sat in my first meeting, and I watched it progress. In the first half of the meeting, they had someone stand up and give out these wild and crazy situations, and he picked on people at random to speak for two minutes. And people who were speaking had never heard the topics before, and they did such a good job. I thought, how did they do that? I can't speak on pigeons for two minutes. How do they do that? I don't know anything about automobiles. And the man just stood there and made a good story out of some ridiculous automobile he had. How does he do that? And I sat and watched the, the program progress. And they got to the organized part of the speeches, where the members would be pre-selected a week or two in advance. And they'd know that they'd have to give a five to seven minute speech in front of the club on any topic of their choosing, but fulfilling certain requirements. They were working on a certain project, a certain technique of of speaking, might be gestures, or they might be working on modulation of voice, or they might be working on eye contact, or they might be working on just pure organization or vocabulary or like that. And so I sat down, I was watching all this happen, and by the end of the evening I thought, that's pretty good, I like that, that was kind of fun, I think I'm going to come back next week and see what happens. And I noticed that everyone who, who attended there had these little things hanging from their pockets, little postmaster badges. And I thought to myself, you know, I can't speak like that, but by George, they sure had fun doing it, and they certainly did it so well. Huh? Maybe if I get one of those little plastic things to hang from the edge of my pocket, I will become a good speaker. It's like, you know, rubbing a rabbit's foot, you know, you have plastic out of your pocket, you become a good speaker. Well, I thought to myself, well, gee, maybe, maybe I should consider even joining. <gasps> yeah, become a joiner, join these people. Well, it was fun, and I thought to myself, there were times I attended a lecture, uh, or libertarian party function, and at the end of the talk, the speaker would say, any questions? And I'd raise my hand, and I'd stand up, and I'd feel my knees shake. And I'd think to myself, that's stupid. Why, why am I knees shaking? I know what I'm going to say. I can phrase it fairly decently. Why is my heart pounding, and why are my knees shaking? I couldn't understand that. And apparently, the, these people at these clubs had overcome that ability. Perhaps their knees still shake, or their butterflies are still in their stomach, but at least their butterflies fly in formation, if nothing else. So I thought, that was nifty, the way they can do that. And so, yes, I joined, and they put me right, right to work away. They made me the secretary treasurer for the incoming year, and, and I got more and more active. So, where was I suckered into that? I'll tell you. But I want to explain even a little bit about the, the Toastmasters program, what they're doing and how they're doing it. Every new joiner gets a manual of projects to work on. You get a set of ten manuals that work on body language. They work on vocal variety. They work on eye contact. Just various techniques of communication. And after you complete ten of these things, you get one of those pieces of plastic that hang from your badge. And I, and I thought, oh, that's it. If I can just do ten of these projects, I have that little piece of plastic, I will become a good speaker. Lo and behold, I did ten speeches in the course of a year, about twelve months. And I sent away, said, you know, the educational vice president of the club checked off, yeah, he did one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And he sent it into Toastmasters International in Santa Ana. And in the mail, I got back this little brown badge. And I was so proud. I got that brown badge and I started wearing it to my club and, and it's true. Ever since I've gotten that brown badge, I've become a good speaker. Superstition, I believe in it. Ever since I got that. And I've stayed in just because it's fun. I've stayed in and became an area governor, meaning that you overlook four clubs and report back that they've got their dues coming in on time, the membership's growing and everything's doing active. But the core essence of Toastmasters, what makes it different from perhaps the Dale Carnegie course or any other course? is the evaluation part. That's how you know you're getting good. And that's what sets it apart. I want to emphasize that. Besides going up here and giving the official talk, in every Toastmasters club, you'll be evaluated on how you did. How novel, how different, but how sensible, too. You find out whether the average audience person, one person will evaluate you, saying, well, your eye contact was good, uh, your gestures were fine, you could have changed your voice here and then and emphasized point X, Y, and Z. 
And I remember the first time I sat you know, in a Toastmasters club, I, I heard the evaluators evaluate and said, they're not talking about what the guy said, they're talking about how he said it. But that was so different, so strange. But indeed, that's how you, how you improve, I suppose. You get feedback on how you did. You keep score. How many of us have played baseball and football and not keep score? I think we all want to see how well we did. And that's the, the beauty of the Toastmasters program, is that you get an evaluation. You find out how you did. You speak for five to seven minutes on a topic you're choosing, working on, oh, hand gestures, perhaps. And by the time you sit down, the evaluation begins. You say, well, Mr. Goldie was uh, good hand gestures. I like when he did this at that kind of point. And this is a way of keeping score. And it was so much fun that I, I kept up my membership. I've been a member for a number of years. And in fact, I would encourage you to write to Toastmasters International in Santa Ana, California, and get a list of the, of the Toastmasters Club in your neighborhood. They list them by zip code, so just tell them where you live. And Toastmasters will say, here's a list of clubs around. And I happened to join Libertarian Toastmasters of, of Los Angeles about three and a half years ago. And I've enjoyed it ever since. And certainly Linda Dorfmont has, was there before me and can tell you about it as well. So I've gotten a lot out of it. I think it's a very clever way of, of improving, of getting feedback on how you did. Very much like what Marshall was trying to achieve. Get feedback on how you did. So, in closing, it's done wonders for me, in my opinion. I wouldn't have run for Congress without it. And I encourage you to at least check it out. That's all I ask. Check it out. Mr. Toastmaster. Thank you. Thank you for that nice speech. We have two more speakers on our program tonight. The second is David Berglund, who we have all known love. He's graduated from UCLA, majored in English and Economy. He also graduated from USC Law School was a professor of law at Western State University down in San Diego, was the 1984 Libertarian candidate for president, and the author of Libertarianism in One Lesson, which most of us here, if we haven't read it yet, shame, shame, I give you David Berglund. Good afternoon, fellow Toastmasters. Pleasure to see you. The talk that I'm going to give today is, I think, perfectly appropriate for what we're here to learn, and it is how to prepare a speech. In ancient Rome, they had some interesting customs. They would put the gladiators out there to fight, and they'd bring in the lions and the bulls. A lot of times, the people, the men that they put into the arena weren't real happy about that situation. On one occasion, an interesting thing happened. They got this fellow who was a slave or a criminal and they dressed him up in a, they gave him a sword and they gave him some armor, dressed him up and sent him out there. And in comes the lion. And they circle each other for a minute or so and the guy said something to the lion. The lion jumped back, put his tail between his legs and slunk out of the arena. And everybody says, ooh. <laughs> So the emperor says, send in another lion, and they send in another lion, and sure enough, they circle each other, and the guy said something to the lion, and the lion jumped back and slunk out of the arena. Everybody said, ooh, send in another lion. Same thing happened. They circle each other, he says something to the lion, the lion slinks out, and everybody breaks into a big cheer, and the emperor says, okay, you win, that was marvelous. How did you do that? What did you say to the lion? And he said, what I told the lions was, after dinner, you're going to be asked to say a few words to the crowd. <laughs> now, the fear of public speaking, according to the experts, is only second to the fear of death in the minds of most people. And I suppose uh, it's important to see if there aren't some ways to get over that fear. Well, one very good way is to know what you're doing. 
That is, to know how to plan and organize an effective speech. And so that's my purpose today, is to help you with that, so that that will be one little technique that'll get rid of the fear that we all have of public speaking, at least take you some way or some part of the way down that road. So what I'm going to be talking about is how to plan a speech, how to draft a speech, and third, some handy hints on effectiveness by selecting certain sorts of things that you can put into your speech or ways to draft it. And I have with me a little device that may help. Good. The planning phase. This is really a very simple system, folks. Nothing to it. First, know your audience. I said something about that earlier. It's extremely important to know your audience. Now, just stop and think. Doesn't it make a difference if, say, the people are old or young, if they are knowledgeable and sophisticated, or alternatively, they may be not very well educated, not very well informed. They may be interested, or they may be just some sort of captive audience that's there for the heck of it. What time of day is it? If it's in the evening, after everybody's had a big dinner and a few drinks, that's a little different than if it's at 10 o'clock in the morning. People may know a little bit about you and like it, and you may already be libertarian, for instance, or they may know about you and not like it. I may be sociologists, who knows. It's important to know something about your audience because if you can express to them in how you deal with them, that you understand them and that you know your value, know their values and relate to them, then you're going to do better with them. The second item, the objective. Remember I said, what did I say earlier? All capital letters, double underline, three exclamation points. Know what you're doing there. You're going to plan a speech. You know you're going to be making a speech to some group. You better know why you want to do it. What's the results you want? What's the change in the behavior that you want to see? Know your objective. The theme. Now at this point in the planning phase, I want you to write out and become very critical in your drafting of what you're writing out. This is the one idea that you want to leave with the audience. Somebody were to interview any member of that audience on their way out of the auditorium or wherever you've spoken to them and say, well, what did you learn from that guy? This is what you'd want them to say. Most people can't remember very much from a talk. If they can remember two or three points, you're doing pretty well. The theme, write it out. The next item, data collection. Now, as libertarians, we all know a heck of a lot. Somebody says, ever had this experience? Somebody says, get to the point. Stop talking. You've told me eight times more than I ever wanted to know about in response to the question that uh, I just asked you. Well, libertarians are ahead here. Simply sit down, write out just a little reminder notes of all of the various points that you could make in your talk. Then you're going to wind up using some of them. And the last item, the conclusion. Lay out a tentative final statement in the planning phase. Now, isn't that simple? But you can't miss if you use this system. You know, it's not the only system that you could use. Use the system that I'm talking about here. But it's one that I have found works well, no matter what the topic and what the audience, you can always use it. Now we get into the drafting phase, five steps. When you get up, after you've been introduced, the first words out of your mouth in a speech that's going to go for a number of minutes, whether it's five, fifteen, twenty-five, doesn't matter. The first sentence, or three or four, Think no more than that first paragraph or so. 
That's your hook. Purpose of the hook is just to get the attention. You want an attention getting opening. Did I use an attention getting opening in this talk? I told you a little anecdote about the lion. What was the point I was trying to make? The fear of public speaking. Okay, I got your attention. Then you go to the theme. Well, you've already written out the theme. Remember you did that in the planning phase. And this is where you put that in. Why do you put it here? Because if you have a nice attention getting opening, this is the peak, the point at which the attention is really up there and at its highest. So if you lay your theme on them, it's likely to stick. This is the point, this is the idea you want them to, to remember. Next one. Remember there's the old army system for designing a speech. Tell them what you're gonna tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. Well, in my system, this is where you tell them what you're going to tell them. It's a little preview of where you're going. And most people like to know that, uh, are we, uh, how much time are we on? Two minutes. Okay. I didn't, we didn't get an instruction on what time it is. So you give them the outline of where you're going. Then the body. You select the number of points that you have time to deal with which support your theme, which substantiate it. And then you move into the conclusion. And I have some special details on the conclusion. You give the folks a little signal that you're just moving into the wrap-up. It brings up the attention a little bit more. Then you review where you've been. We've covered X, Y, and Z. Wasn't that nice that I told you that? Then you recapitulate your theme. You may not say it just exactly the way you did the first time, but you come back to it. And then the call to action. Remember what your objective was? Well, this is where you tell them, now this is what I want you to do because of all that wonderful stuff I just told All right? That's how you draft it. Alas, and last, a few reminders. Prepare your own introduction. Give it to the person who's going to introduce you because that's the way to make sure that you get introduced, in, get introduced the way you want to and establish your credibility. Make an outline, but don't speak. Don't read a speech. Outline it with short notes just to remind yourself of what you have to work with. Personalize what you're talking about. Put yourself in. Talk about your own experiences. People relate to you better if you do that. Make everything concrete and visual. Most people can't deal with abstractions and theories and principles. Paint a visual picture for them to substantiate your point. Use relevant anecdotes if you can. And I like to make sure that you use time, that you have time for questions afterwards because that's where the people can really get to know you. I've observed, I don't know how many speakers that have seen kind of, but once they got into the Q&A, in two or three minutes, the exchange of people in the audience, they're really connecting. They become part of the group, and that's very important. So there you have it. Very, very simple system, but it works every time. There are other ways to design the speech, and they're fine, but if you want a way that will make it easy for you, then this is it. I recommend that you use it. And now that you know this simple little system, I don't want to hear anybody telling me that you're afraid of getting up in public and speaking because you have everything you could ever want to get you in shape to do the job well. Thank you. Thank you, David Berglund, for that very good informative speech. And one of the things that he mentioned was about making your own bio. Marshall Fritz has done that for us. Here it is. If anybody wants to read it, I'm not going to. I decided I'd just tell you a little story about something that uh, Marshall and I were involved in. We had the opportunity a little while back to be on the Tom Head Show in Fresno, which is a talk show heard all over the valley. And what we did, I say we, I didn't get a chance to talk, but what, what Marshall did was to 
um, compare the Berlin Wall with our border fence with Mexico. And we raised the consciousness and the blood pressure in the whole Central Valley by quite a bit. Uh, one lady called up and said, where do you get these fat heads anyway? He's, he's making my blood pressure rise. This isn't good for me. I'm about to have a heart attack. Please keep these fat heads off the air. So I present to you Marshall Fritz. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Notice he used the plural, fat heads, off the air, right? So, and he was far too modest. He did get a few words in edgewise. At one point he said, uh, do you know who the first illegal uh, alien immigrant to California was and when that person was ejected from California? And of course, uh, neither I nor the, the, the host knew the answer to that question, but John did, and it was, you know, Tom Johnson in 1823, a citizen of the United States, was ejected from California because he'd snuck in here and it belonged to Mexico at the time, and they kicked him out. <laughs> so, so anyway, there was more than one fathead on that show, if, uh, if you will be so kind as to remember. And here what we'll do is pass around one of these kind of a things that you can just type up. I, I made mine look fancy and everything. But if you just walk in with something that's typed and hand it to the, to the program chair, uh, he'll get up there and make uh, something good uh, in terms of, a, of an introduction. How many of us would like to have people behind our back saying, she's a dynamic or he's a dynamic speaker? I want to see a little old show of hands here. How many of us would like to have people talking about us behind our back? I mean, you wouldn't, you know, okay. I don't want to be ever called. What, are you being modest or, <laughs> or trying to trick me? Over on this side, how many of us would like to have people saying behind our back that he's a dynamic speaker? It is learnable. You can actually learn how to be a dynamic speaker. It don't come born with the carcass. It ain't natural. It's learnable. It's like a handshake. You had to learn how to do it. You didn't jump out of the womb and say, Hi, Doc, what's this I hear about the AMA? <laughs> you had to learn how to do that. And you can learn how to be a dynamic speaker. And I'm going to give you two insights into how to do that. The first insight is to be speaking on something of which you feel passionate. Now, if I were to get up and talk about Hoover Dam and its contribution to the agriculture of the central high desert of southern Nevada, And I'm going to be teaching you a technique to develop yourself in this direction. Now, there's three communication zones, or three speaking zones, if you will. Most of the time, a speech is in the communication zone. Right now, my voice is kind of in the middle range. It's not real high, and it's not real low. And I'm speaking at a fairly regular pace. My gestures are kind of, oh basically within uh, 10 or 12 inches of my sternum, okay, a little circle here, and I'm in the communications zone. Sometimes we need to get into the excitement zone, and the power of our voice has to go up a bit, and the pitch has to go up a little bit, and the, and the pace at which we're delivering the words has got to get higher and higher, and the, and the, the gestures get higher. 
and there's other times which we must be in the dramatic zone. Drop our voice to the lower registers. Drop the gesture to the loins. Decrease the pace at which the words are being delivered. Down, down, everything, down. Now, those are the three, back in the communication zone, those are the three zones and how or what is the key? The key is to go through those zones. Um, the technical term is every once in a while. Yeah, you got it. Uh, when it seems appropriate. When you feel like it. You go up some of the time, you come down some of the time. And what I'm going to teach you today is a little known but very crucial technique that I learned, in fact invented, watching David Berglund, a year-old cassette video of him on high speed. Now, as you <laughs> video, high speed video, right? And I'll tell you how I learned this thing. And that is, and, and, and I've told David privately this, I don't think I've ever told it on tape <laughs> publicly to an audience. But I was watching a videotape of David, and I wanted to see some particular part, so I was sitting there on high speed forward, but not real high speed. I was still watching him on the screen, and I noticed all of his gestures were about 10 to 12 inches from his belly button, and everything was right in here. And I was wondering about that, and someone else once pointed out to me that whenever you see a Leninist or Marxist kind of a poster, that hand is over the head, right? But here we are with our constipated little <laughs> gestures, you know, emphasizing our, you know, points that's high speed. And it occurred to me that our hands might be the key to learning how to modulate our voices and the rest of us. That there is a congruence between our bodies and the attitude and, and, and everything. Will someone please tell me, just make it up, you know, your cat died or something, but tell me something that is very sad news. Oh, that's too bad. There was a non-congruency, right? The gesture needs to be, oh, that's too bad. And George laughs at a congruent gesture. But the, the, the bad news demands you fall into the dramatic zone. Oh, God. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's right. Down there. Now, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to have a little exercise here where you're going to volunteer, should you wish to, to come forward and to practice the, the, the vocal variety, and you're going to let your hands lead the rest of your body, your voice, and everything. And sometimes, when I, you're going to give me control over your emotions for, a, for maybe a minute or a minute and a half. You're going you're gonna to follow the little arrow, you know, follow the bouncing arrow with Mitch. And when I put that arrow, I'm going to be sitting right in front of Bruce the timer, and I'm going to put that arrow up, and that means I want to see those hands go over your head. And for your voice to get louder, whatever your upper range is. And when I put that arrow down, we want to see you. I don't know how low you want to go. But I want to see you get down. Okay, huh? Huh? Okay, all right. And what you're going to do is you're going to pick up your blue book and you're going to walk over here and need about three volunteers, preferably somebody who hasn't volunteered before, preferably somebody who's scared and doesn't want to do this too much. Yeah, maybe somebody who really does, okay? So we need a couple, three volunteers. A couple, three volunteers. Who's going to be our first? Oh, good, Karen, perfect. Thank you. Come on up here, Karen. Come on up here. Good, Carrie. Excellent. Bring your blue book. Bring your blue book. 
Need one from the other side of the room. Eric Palmer, all the way from, where are you from, Eric? What? Ventura, California, Mountain Dew, California, and uh, Johannes, Johannesburg, South Africa, and win the award for coming the longest distance to attend the summit this year. <laughs> okay, we're going to step right up here. You, you uh, stand over here and watch. We're going to start with Eric, and Eric, uh, let's see here. I want to select a page carefully. Good. There's your page right there, okay? And you're going to read this, and I'm going to be sitting there on the floor in front of you, and for... One minute you're going to read, and you're going to, to delegate to me the decision of whether you are up or down, okay? Uh, that might be a good idea, okay? An interesting problem, your mic, That's your mic stand, okay? But do you feel energy or excitement when you sit down to do your annual tax return? Energy grows in the presence of individual choice, and diminishes in the presence of slavery. Point three, a spirit of cooperation. Cooperation happens when? It happens in the presence of individual choice. Oh! <laughs> Aaron Huffman, ladies and gentlemen, all the way from Mountain View, and we, she has selected the page. Okay. <laughs> I believe over the next 25 years we shall witness the ascendancy of self-government and the gradual demise of political government as we have known it. Of course, you will have questions. Questions? Most of you will have to wait for a day or, or two before this comes true. But there's one question I can answer now. Do I mean the same thing by the word government as you do? No. I... <laughs> Is that the one you want? Sure. I haven't right. looked at it. <laughs> <laughs> Willie Mandela's new sweetheart, we present <laughs> Harry Welsh. <laughs> when I talk about the American Revolution as not yet complete, I'm borrowing a definition from the second president of the United States, John Adams. In 1818, Mr. Adams was asked, write an article about the American Revolution. Today, we think of the revolution as getting its start in 1776 with the signing of the Declaration of Independence. But in his article, John Adams maintained that the American Revolution really took place before the years 1760 and 1775, and that the war was merely an unfortunate consequence and not truly a part of the American Revolution. <laughs> well done. Now let's sit back and look at what did we learn. We're talking about how to become a dynamic speaker. And it's not just hollering. You see somebody up here who just hollers, and after a while you're going to say, that person is strident. It's exhausting. I can't stand listening to this Goebbels imitation. You know, that kind of a thing. I wish you would just slow down and communicate. But on the other hand, if a person just slows down and communicates, and the 23rd point, oh good, we have time for the 23rd point. <laughs> and of course, a person who is always dramatic. Every word. Right? Gag, gag, gag. The key is to modulate, to go up and down through those appropriately when you feel like it. So, lesson one, speak about something you feel passionate. And lesson two, go up and down appropriately. Mr. Toastmaster! much, Marshall. And I didn't really mean to call you a fathead. That was somebody else. <laughs> now, somewhere around here, I have my list of, there we go, to evaluate 
Our first speaker, Kim Goldsworthy, is Robbie Robinson. Oh, first of all, the, the evaluators will be timed, and the timing is two minutes, two to three minutes. So the yellow card will come on at two minutes, the red, the, no, the green at two minutes, the yellow at two and a half, and the red at three. Uh, Mr. Robbie Robertson to Robinson to evaluate Kim Goldsworthy. I had a good friend, a little Jewish friend, and he had some problems with the law. He went to jail. I got a phone call and said he won't talk send somebody to help us. So I went down there, and I looked around, and I said, oh, it's a very simple, take his handcuffs off. Uh, you saw a speaker today with his handcuffs off. You saw a speaker that was himself. He wasn't trying to fake it, but you could understand where he was coming from. And I think this is so important when you make a speech, when you're talking to a group, number one, be sincere. Unless you're a professional, don't try to fake it. Get your hands moving. This is what you saw in Kim as he spoke. He got his hands moving. This is so important. You hold attention by your gestures and how you move about the podium, how you stand at the lectern. I noticed one speaker who, well, Kim did, uh, put his hand in his pocket for just a moment. This is fine. It helps a diversion of the audience. So these things are very important when you're speaking. Your gestures are so important. And another thing that is very important is the inflection of the voice. Marshall explained that to us in great detail. I've heard this before, and it takes a lot for it to sink in, but it's getting there. So if you will follow the example that Kim set for you, you should be able to go out into any situation and hold attention. Try going to a senior high school class, a continuation school, and holding their attention for 30 minutes and see how it works. You can't do it unless you use some of these things that are important. Your voice, your sincerity, and believe me, the general public can see through you in about two minutes. And unless you get their attention within the first 30 minutes of your remarks, you're almost sunk for the rest of your talk. So get their attention. Use the gestures. Use your hands. Most of all, see that your voice conveys the deep feeling that you have uh, within yourself for the uh, speech that you're giving. If you don't believe it, they won't. And they can tell whether you believe it or not in just a very short time. This was exemplified by our first speaker, Kim, today. Good speech, Kim. Thank you. Thank you, Robbie. And I know that he knows what he's talking about. The first time I ever saw him was at a speech contest in Reedley, and he was using his hands. He, it was a humorous speech contest, and he played the part of a drunk. Oh, it was a great part. He did a good job of it, too, especially for somebody who hardly drinks. Next to evaluate David Berglund's speech is Linda Dorfmont. Linda Dorfmont. 
Thank you, Mr. Toastmaster, fellow Toastmasters, and fellow advocates, and especially Dave. This was an excellent example of how to present a speech using visual aids. The speech was very well organized, and it was about how to organize and prepare a speech. It followed a very